Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hi everyone, welcome to Dan Snow's History. I've got a famous voice on this podcast. He's one of the most remarkable broadcasters. He has won so many awards for his poetic and wonderfully delivered prose over the years. It is Fergal Keane, BBC veteran. As you'll hear, he's got a life that spans both sides of the Irish Sea. But currently he's living in the UK and that's where his new series is being broadcast. I should say, actually, we don't cover in this podcast his extraordinary work from apartheid South Africa or many of his other uh, adventures, if that's the right way to put it, as a foreign correspondent. Instead, we're talking about uh, his new series that he's done with the BBC. It's called How the Irish Shaped Britain. And 100 years on from the partition of Ireland in 1921, this felt like a very special time for this series and a great time for this conversation. We've got lots of other Irish history podcasts and we've got a couple of Irish history shows as well available on historyhit.tv. It's the only place where you can listen to the whole back catalogue of this podcast uh, and it's the only place where you can listen to them ad free which lots of people quite like apparently i think ads are quite amusing myself but anyway you can listen to the whole thing ad free we've still got our crazy january sale at the moment a lot of people rushing to get the last few days of january is it still january i don't know days months don't seem to matter very much anymore but uh lots of people rushing to get ahead of that guillotine that deadline if you go to historyhit.tv and use the code january january you get a month for free so you can go and listen to whatever you like, watch whatever you like. It's like Netflix for history over there. You're going to love it. And then you get your next three months for 80% off. So just a few pence, a few cents, a few fennigs, whatever they are, wherever you are, uh, we'll, get you, uh, we'll get you historyhit.tv, which is the world's best history channel. But in the meantime, everybody, it gives me enormous pleasure to have a broadcast that I've so long admired, uh, very occasionally worked alongside and learned so much from Fergal Key. Fergal, this is such a great pleasure to have you on the podcast. My pleasure too, Dan. My pleasure. You're someone whose life and career has spanned the Irish Sea. This show, it feels personal to you. It is. It's, it's very personal. I mean, I'm talking to you from London, a city where I was born, but where I didn't grow up. My parents were briefly sort of migrants in London in 1961. My father was appearing in a play um, at the Royal Court Theatre, The Playboy of the Western World by John Millington Singh. And uh, because of that, I just happened to be born in London. Um, and because of that, found myself entitled to British and Irish citizenship. But I grew up uh, in the south of Ireland. Um, occasional visits. I think I came to, to Britain once as a teenager uh, with the Boy Scouts, and um, and on another occasion when my father was again acting in a play, but that was the, the sort of sum total of my travels to Britain, and yet I grew up in a context in Ireland in which I couldn't be but 
aware of the enormous impact of the British Imperium uh, on the history of Ireland. Uh, my grandparents um, on one side had been revolutionaries who joined the IRA and fought against the British uh, in the Irish War of Independence. But on the other side, I had uh, family members, a great-grandfather who had served in the Royal Irish Constabulary and had been part of um, the Imperial Project. Um, and so, it, it, you know, the my own family's lives were shaped uh, by Britain, by the connection with Britain, but also everything about the language that I grew up speaking, English, you know, came as a as a consequence of of British plantation and British settlement. The um, the history uh, of the island, the troubles that erupted in 1969, and which I was, you know, very keenly aware of growing up as a teenager in the south. It, it occasionally spilled over into the south, but the constant drumbeat. Uh, of that violence was something that we heard um, and were told about uh, in the South. All of that was as a consequence of our relationship uh, with the island next door. And so it shaped me, of course it did, hugely. Yeah, all of my Irish friends complain that whenever they talk to Brits, the Brits suddenly start banging on about their Irish antecedents, sort of trying to prove prove their Irishness. So so here we go. I, I, would, I have to conform to that. Um, my dad is a kind of mirror image of the view, if you like. He was born in Dublin, but left fairly young. Uh, his family were kind of Anglo-Irish. They were West Cork, but left at partition. They went up to Down. I guess like you, I've always felt uh, the kinship between Britain and Ireland more than, than antagonism, just because of my particular personal privilege and situation. Um, but in this series, you do seem to also be talking a lot about what these two places have in common. Of course we do. I mean, it's, it's simply not... It's. The, you know, the ge- the geography is something that we cannot change, nor is it something I would ever wish to change. Um, but I sort of grew up learning very much about what the British impact on us had been, um, as I've outlined uh, in the previous answer. And to me, what fascinates me is how, how did it work the other way around? How did we shape um, the big island next door? Or as one of my contributors rather mischievously puts it, the larger landmass. <laughs> and of course... You know, when you start digging into it, and this was the difficulty of even trying to produce something in the space of, you know, three half-hour programmes, because it's, you could be telling this story for years. So profound has has been the impact. And whether that's back to the period of the, you know, pre-Roman Empire, when Irish raiders were uh, coming up and down the coast of Britain, whether you, you know... Irish tribes crossing into Scotland, forming kingdoms there. Then during the Roman period, this fascinating nugget, which was revealed to me while while making the series, that you had the Romans bringing in Irish settlers, planters, giving them their own sort of mini kingdoms as a buffer against the invasions and the depredations of Irish pirate tribes. Um, All of that, you know, which then spreads out into a continuing presence that endures until this day and which you see in the fields of uh, the construction, the, you know, the sort of physical building of Britain, but also hugely in terms of culture and, of course, the building of the British Empire. And that's one of those things which, in Ireland, we've paid far too little attention to because it didn't slot into the kind of comfortable nationalist narrative of uh, hundreds of years of struggle against the British, um, when, in fact... The British Empire provided many Irishmen, and I'm not just talking about people who served in the armed forces, you know, for for hundreds of years. I'm talking about 
you know, young Irish Catholics um, who wanted to get ahead in the world, who'd received a decent education, who, because of the sectarian realities at home in Ireland, knew that there was a glass ceiling for any Catholic, but who could look at the empire and realise that the sky was the limit. And they went on to become colonial governors, commanders of the British um, armies, imperial civil servants at, at every rank. That's a whole fascinating area of study. And I'm confident in saying that the British Empire, as it went on to you know, to cover such a large part of the landmass, could not have happened without the active participation of the Irish. I like the fact that this series isn't chronological. I was sort of slightly dreading just the, the, to launch straight into the first episode and launch straight back to St. Patrick, the Romans, and all that kind of stuff. But, but actually, you start with a discussion of the, the cultural and, and sort of social human relations between our two islands. Uh, we don't get Tastus and Agricola straight away. So, I mean, vi- violence, you know, this archipelago, like anywhere else in the world, has been ripped apart by violence on so many occasions. But you obviously think it's important now to talk about cultural exchange as much as as that history of conflict. I mean, it is. And, you know, as somebody passionate about history, of course, and, and my, my own early passion with history came from... Um, you know, military history. The the books that I read as a child were, and I was a very strange child, Dan. When you when you when you consider this, there were biographies of Bismarck, Napoleon Bonaparte, Gustavus Adolphus, um, and you know the stories of battles. But you know, growing older, I saw that that you know history, the imprint that we leave upon one another, um, has every bit as much to do with culture, and if you like soft power, and if you want the greatest living example for me um, of soft power. Um, in history, it is the Irish impact uh, on Britain, and you go back, you know, go back to the Roman times and early Christianity uh, and Irish monks settling and uh, founding monasteries uh, in Scotland, helping to keep Christianity alive in what, of course, we wrongly call the Dark Ages. They weren't Dark Ages, um, but in a period when Christianity itself was under siege um, and and threatened across much of Europe, the influence of the Irish was profound. You look at the, the island of Lindisfarne, um, for example. One of the historians that I interview for the uh, for the series talks about the, the Irish hand being the English hand, and this is just in, in terms of handwriting, right down until 1066 because of the influence uh, uh, of Irish clerics. And so we, we go from that into um, a period when uh, Irish writers, and some of them are Anglo-Irish, some of them are Irish Catholics, become preeminent um, in the development uh, of the of English theatre. And I'm thinking about people like uh, Richard Brinsley Sheridan, for example, William Congreve, someone like Thomas Moore. Now, here's a fascinating character who goes to university at Trinity College in Dublin, Protestant University, but he's the son of a Catholic grocer. And Moore is very sympathetic with Irish rebels during the rebellion of 1798 and then Robert uh, Emmett's rebellion at the turn of the uh, of the 19th century he writes this beautiful ballad the minstrel boy to the the minstrel boy to the wars has gone and the ranks of death you'll find him this is very sympathetic as i say uh, to the irish rebels but becomes one of the great songs of the British Armed Forces, played every year at the Cenotaph um, in November. Moore himself goes from being this character who is questioned during the period of the 1798 rebellion, falls under suspicion because of his sympathies uh, for the rebels, becomes a toast of London um, literary society, a best friend uh, of Lord Byron, indeed executor uh, of Byron's will, becomes briefly, at at one period, um, a colonial civil servant. Um, in Bermuda, and Moore is a sort of symbol, if you like. He he's he's sort of iconic 
of that Irishman who arrives, the Catholic Irishman particularly, who arrives into London society in the 18th and 19th centuries um, and makes his way very effectively, very seductively, one might say. In a a later episode, I talked to an Irish comedian, a modern Irish man called Dara O'Brien, and I asked him, what is it? this gift uh, that the Irish have of being able to not only find acceptance but enormous success in in the British mainstream in theatre and in entertainment. And um, he says it's something to do with charm. Um, Louis MacNeice, that great Ulster Protestant poet, uh, put it a different way. He said, the Irish have a hold over the sentimental English. I think there's something in that. I think one of the great misnomers of all time, or you know, misapprehensions, is this idea that the English are the people with the stiff upper lip. Not at all. They're profoundly sentimental people, um, and that gave the Irish a gift in in presenting to them an idea of a world that never was, which is the sort of you know sentimental Celtic uh, world, hugely popular, of course, in, in the late Victorian period when the sort of myths of nations and nation-states were being constructed. You're listening to History. I'm talking to Fergal Keane. More from The Wonderful Man after this. Join us this month on Gone Medieval from History Hit. I'm Matt Lewis. And I'm Eleanor Yanaga. This April, dive into our special mini-series. With the help of leading experts, we're tracing the foundations of England by exploring the country's most powerful Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. We'll be looking at Northumbria, Mercia and Wessex, as well as the rulers and their councils who helped shape a nation. Make sure to get every episode by listening and following Gone Medieval from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful. Wi Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. And also remember, when you use a messaging app, they shrink the photos. You cannot print those out. You cannot blow them up. This is high quality imagery going to one of the most important people in your life. The Aura app is super easy to set up. It takes about two minutes. And you're going to love it. There's free unlimited storage. Add unlimited photos and videos and invite as many people as you want to a frame. Right now, Aura has got a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A Frames.com. Use code Dan Snow at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. First of all, Fergal, let me just say you were not a strange child. You're among friends here. We all had, we all had accounts of Gustavus Adolphus at Breitenfeld and Lutzen on our shelves. Um, but uh, so don't worry, don't worry. You're among friends. But let's ask the big question: what, Why did the Anglo-Irish project, the kind of the British Isles project, fail? The Reformation? 
Oh, yeah, exactly. Hold your horses. Things like the Reformation. It's this, <laughs> this detonation, you know, this extraordinary moment. You could argue, and I think one of the great counterfactuals is, what would have happened had Henry VIII not broken with Rome and, and had the English Reformation not proceeded? We can say even if Henry had broken with Rome, but had it not proceeded to the much more radical Protestantism which would later emerge, um, and had Britain, had England, let, let us say, not felt the existential threat that it did uh, from Catholic Europe. Because that is what changes everything. That is when the Irish suddenly become the potential backdoor um, to the overthrow of the Reformation and the overthrow of Protestant England. Um, and and whenever a state feels itself threatened, and, and it is fascinating to look at the literature. One of the, one of the projects that I'm researching at the moment is a book about the plantation of Munster, my home province um, in Ireland. And reading the, doc, you know, the documentary evidence of Walsingham spies, the terror that existed um, at very senior levels um, in England, which filtered its way down to the population, of invasion and overthrow um, by the Spanish in, in that period, but then you go forward to the, the kind of uh, the impact of Napoleonic France sending an invasion fleet as well um, off the coast of Ireland. This is why it really mattered. It, religion wasn't some sort of point of theological disagreement. Uh, this was a period when, if you were overthrown, uh, and particularly in the case of Elizabethan England, if you were overthrown um, by Philip Spain, you know, unmentionable bloodletting um, and complete reshaping of your society was going to follow. So there was more than an academic interest in what the Irish were getting up to with their religion and who they were allying with. That's what I find so fascinating. The Reformation is so important. But was there a, even possibly a path after that, you know, in the 18th and 19th centuries, where there could have been a kind of united, legitimate state that spanned the Irish Sea? I think it might have been possible for there to exist some kind of continuing kingship based in London, but which encompassed the islands had the Reformation not happened. But I think you also have to factor in the kind of extraordinary energy um, which was unleashed during the Elizabethan period and indeed went on into the Jacobean period. Uh, and that energy was intellectual, it was scientific, but of course it was fundamentally about building empire. Now the question for me is, would the plantation of Ireland have taken place, would the seizing of Irish lands have taken place, had the existing aristocracy, both Gaelic and Old English, in other words, the descendants of the people who had come in with the Normans in the middle of the 12th century, had those people remained loyal to the crown and remained loyal to, to London, would there have been the, the kind of planting energy pushed outwards um, by the Elizabethan and then the Jacobean state? I'm not sure that there would. Uh, and so there is the possibility that you might have had growing up a polity in Ireland which was loyal to London, but always because of the very fact of a separate Gaelic culture that, that continued and also the fact of the Irish Sea that was always at one remove. And that might have meant, of course, in the long term, aspirations towards a nation state, nationalism rising eventually. But we don't know that.
how do you talk about the rise of nationalism in the, in the 19th century? Was nationalism from its very beginnings at, at root a threat to the British imperial project? Irish nationalism, it's very difficult to kind of pin it down as being one thing because, of course, it's shape-shifted um, over the centuries. Let's be more specific and let's talk about violent Irish nationalism. Um, in the sort of 18th and, and specifically the 19th centuries, it is something that surges briefly. You have the Great Rebellion of 1798, which leads in turn to the Act of Union at the turn of the century. And then a long period of relative calm until you get the famine. And out of that comes the impetus and comes much of the bitterness, which will drive the militant, the violent nationalist project uh, right into the 20th century. Uh, so you have the rise of the Fenians, but again, that's crushed pretty quickly as a kind of military exercise, but endures to inspire people who will uh, take part in the rebellion in 1916. And so that's one sort of part of Irish nationalism. But don't forget that the majority of people who would have called themselves Irish nationalists, certainly in the 19th century, were those who supported the pretty much largely constitutional politics of people like Charles Stuart Parnell, of the Land Leaguers. But it was a politics which was very much based at Westminster, which was pushing for not the complete separation um, of Britain and Ireland, but for home rule, Irish home rule, which would have continued within the British Empire. In other words, a kind of super devolution. And when we talk about, as well, Irish nationalism, a huge part of it is what gives you know, these islands the wonderful writing and literature of somebody like W.B. Yeats, whose family comes to Ireland originally back in history um, as, as part of the English plantation, um, but who grows up, um, and like many of his, his his cohorts, people like Oscar Wilde, people like James Millington Singh, George Bernard Shaw, who grow up to be people, exponents of a very definite Irish culture, um, which has an enormous impact uh, on these islands. And that um, you know, Irish national culture, which Yeats was at the, the fore of developing, had elements of, of sort of anti-Englishness um, about it but it was much broader, it was about a great deal more than that and so it, it was certainly not the kind of literature although Yeats did worry at one point he, he writes, did that play of mine send out certain men the English shot referring to his, his great nationalist play Kathleen Hulhan, but he was not a um, if we say shall we say a rabble rouser for violence he was far too intelligent, much too subtle um, a creative force for that So Britain has just brexited uh, Scotland looks like it may choose to go its its own way as well. Although we rightly talk about the, the politics and the constitutional arrangements of the Isles and, and the violence that has benighted these islands until very, very recently, do you think we still do talk a bit too much about the politics, the constitutional arrangements? I mean, does it matter? Do you think it... I mean, dare I say, does it matter as much as that, that our scientific, our cultural history? I think it's a very interesting question, but it's a question you would only ask me in 2021. It's not a question you would have asked me 10 years ago, and certainly not 10 years before that. It's a luxury to be able to ask that question. Had you been asking me that at the height of the Troubles, well, you wouldn't even have thought to ask me, because at that point you had the IRA waging a campaign, and we talk about how the Irish shaped Britain. Look at your Prevention of Terrorism Act, 1974. That was a shaping of British law, by virtue of the fact that there was an armed campaign, insurrectionary campaign, going on on the mainland um, of Britain. British cities like Birmingham being bombed, Guildford, um, 
that in turn leading to not just the Prevention of Terrorism Act, but injustices like the uh, Birmingham Six, the Guildford Four. We can enjoy the culture, we can reflect on the culture, we can see it develop richly, I think, when there is an absence of violence. It is when you get, and, uh, and I'm not sure we're at all out of the woods, I think that's one of the great, um, one of the great problems at the moment. I don't think we're out of the woods at all. Uh, in terms of seeing the end of insurrectionary violence, or let us say the possibility of insurrectionary violence uh, as a consequence of the still fractured constitutional relationship in these islands. Do you get a nagging feeling when you're in some of those places that there is a bit too much history? I'm not sure that that's the problem. It's a really relevant question now, in this particular period, the decade of centenaries, as they call them, when we're, we're remembering the... The 1916 rebellion, then the Irish, what what you call the Anglo-Irish War, what Irish people call the War of Independence, then the Irish Civil War and the the partition of Ulster, the creation of uh, of Northern Ireland. And I'm, I'm not sure it's a question of there being too much history, but it's about the kind of history that we're looking at. And what strikes me looking at the current period is that we we're spending a lot of our time looking at the history of violence the history of political violence. Now, that's a fascinating field of study. But if anything, in my series, what I try to show is that it's far from the only story. And I would like us to see more, you know, putting more emphasis around kind of cultural um, anniversaries and studying the kind of complexity, the cultural complexity um, of our relationship and not just the story of massacres, bombings um, and brutality. Because that's where you tend to, where history tends to get uh, to get weaponized, and I'm not saying you know nobody in an official capacity at the moment in in terms of either governments or indeed the advisory panels uh, who work to set out an agenda for, for for the the period of of centenaries are doing this. They're not into weaponizing, but political parties do, and there is a there is always, you know, there is always a battle about who controls the narrative of the past. And that's not unique to Ireland. But we're seeing that right now. One of the great things that happened when I was growing up in Ireland is that we moved from a nationalist telling of history um, into a period where it became about more than the 700 years of oppression. It became about more than just massacre. Important as all those things are to remember. But it became about the question as well of how we shaped each other and of what good the British Imperium did uh, in Ireland, as well as the undoubted catalogue of infamy um, that came with so many of the conquerors and so many of the planters. And it's that, it's more nuanced, it's more reflective history we need, rather than turning away from memorialisation. That's uh, Fogelkin, a beautiful place to end it. Thank you very much. Wonderful stuff. How can people get hold of your series? So you can find it on BBC Sounds and uh, anytime you want. And if you're minded to, you can switch on Radio 4 at 8 o'clock on Monday nights um, and then again at 11 o'clock in the morning on Wednesdays and listen in and, uh, and see what we all have in common. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Great, Dan. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Just before you go, bit of a favour to ask. I totally understand if you don't want to become a subscriber or pay me any cash money. 
makes sense. But if you could just do me a favour, it's for free. Go to iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. If you give it a five-star rating and give it an absolutely glowing review, purge yourself, give it a glowing review, I'd really appreciate that. It's tough world out there, law of the jungle out there, and I need all the fire support I can get. So that will boost it up the charts. It's so tiresome. But if you could do it, I'd be very, very grateful. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code DANSNOW at checkout.